I'm going to be honest, I didn't want to make this episode. On this show, I try to make the world of behavioural science seem simple. The tagline for the show is literally behavioural science simplified. But here's the thing. Sometimes behavioural science isn't simple. Sometimes a study that works in a lab doesn't replicate. Sometimes a well-known nudge backfires. And sometimes a nudge-inspired governmental policy that's applied nationwide fails. Today I'll share why nudges don't always work and what happens when nudging goes wrong. All of that coming up. Success Story, hosted by Scott D. Clary, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features Q&A sessions with successful business leaders, keynote presentations, and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups, and entrepreneurship. Back in December last year, Scott did an episode with marketing legend Seth Godin on how to hire well, which I think is well worth tuning into. So listen to Success Story wherever you get your podcasts. I am very lucky today to be joined by Nina Majar. She co-authored Behavioural Science in the Wild, one of the best books on nudges that I've seen over the past few years. Cass Sunstein said the book will change the world, and hopefully today you'll learn why. Here's Nina introducing herself. Hello, I'm Nina Majar. That comes from Croatia, that last name. I'm a professor of marketing at Boston University's Questrom School of Business. I had the opportunity to co-found a behavioral science consulting company because I got to know two people that that, um, were entrepreneurs, Doug Steiner and Louis Ng, and they were friends of Dana Rielli, so my, my former advisor. And they came one day to my office and said, you know what, the kind of research that Dan, you, Dilip, and others are doing, it really lends itself to the practitioner world. And, and, and why don't we see if we can make a business out of that? That business is BE Works, a behavioral science consultancy focused on helping organizations apply their own nudges. After years of applying nudges at BE Works, Nina realized that successfully using behavioral science in the wild, in businesses, in practitioner roles, well, doing that isn't easy. It's not so trivial to apply the insights that we as scientists are producing, to apply them and scale them to the real world. Sometimes it works beautifully, what has been shown in the lab to translate that in the field, and sometimes it does not. And there isn't much written, at least in the scientific world, about this. There isn't that much publicized about that to the practitioner's audience. And so there is, we felt that there was this impression out there, especially through our conversations with practitioners, that behavioral science is easy. Because it's so intuitive, right? When you read about those studies, we are all humans. We are all consumers. We have, so we can all envision um, these experiments working, and 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 then it's like, oh, I can just use it and apply it. But then we would have these conversations with practitioners where they were like, well, it didn't work for us, and 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 sometimes we would even get the sense that people are losing faith. In, in 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 the promise that 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 behavioral science holds and so we thought it's time to bring out a book that is maybe a little bit controversial that 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 raises awareness 
for the fact that things are not that easy and things are complex and you may not receive the results that you wanted. Applying nudges isn't trivial, even nudges that seem destined to work. Take, for example, the UK's decision to make everyone in the UK an organ donor by default. So switching from an opt-in to an opt-out system has been known to really boost organ donation rates from around 15% across the population to 99%. So rather than citizens opting in to become a donor, they are instead automatically enrolled and offered the chance to opt out if they'd rather not take part. In countries like Germany, with an opt-in system, only 12% of the population are signed up as donors. Yet in France, with their opt-out system, 99.91% of eligible people are signed up as organ donors. One simple change to the default makes signing up much, much easier. This finding has been lauded as a success of nudge theory. I've happily shared this study before on the show, highlighting the power of defaults. And governments have taken note. Wales signed up to an opt-out system in 2015, and the rest of the UK followed in 2020. But here's the thing. This effect, the default effect, doesn't always work, at least not in the way you'd expect. And arguably, it hasn't even increased organ donations. So let's take, for example, the default effect. I think I actually think that default effects oftentimes do work. There is a lot of research out there and all kinds of domains showing how when you change the default that that can really change behavior i think the i think default effects have been shown in various domains to work really well most successfully i believe in the domain of financial decision making in particular retirement savings by dick thaler and shlomo bernardsi among others but defaults also sometimes don't work as as intended so when we think back to the first version of the Nudge book, Thaler and and Sunstein devoted a chapter to organ donations and how changing the default may or or may not help. And I think readers somewhat misunderstood Cass and and um, Cass Sunstein and Dick Thaler, thinking that yes, if we want to increase organ donations, we just simply change the default such that everybody in a country is automatically registered as an organ donor and everything is sold. And and Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein actually in in the latest update of their book, I think clarified that, that, that this is not necessarily the case. And in fact, some countries that try to change the default or have gone through changing the default. And, and there aren't that many countries actually that did that, but a, a few that did don't didn't see really this 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 immediate increase in 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 organ donations and 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 the reason for that is that there are so many other things that are contributing to the ultimate goal of increasing organ donations changing the default is about organ donor registrations but if everybody is automatically registered as a donor it's very unlikely that you will have conversations at home about how do you feel about being an organ donor. Research conducted in Wales showed that despite the dramatic increase in Welsh donors, the new system has not actually increased the amount of actual donated organs. Previously, becoming a donor was an active choice. Sure, only 15% of people were doing so, but those who did felt strongly about it. 
They felt strong enough to sign up and therefore these people were much more likely to inform their family, their friends, their next of kin about their wishes. But now everyone was becoming a donor passively and it meant that donors weren't actively telling their family about their desire to donate. There is so much more that has to change when you change the default. Just changing the default so that everybody's automatically registered. If you don't adjust everything else in the system, won't really help. But on the other hand, if people actively have to have to opt in, it's probably a decision that you're making that takes some time. You will have some discussions with your loved ones, with your friends. So they will know that you have thought about it. They will know what your wish is. And then when it comes to the point where, where the family may be asked um, whether they will actually give your organs, they will say yes, because we know that our friend really wanted that. He really cared about that. He really thought about that, right? So that is just just, just one example. And, and I should also point, well, I don't have to, but I would like to also point out that in my work with governments in particular, when they have been thinking about whether to use default interventions, whether to take advantage of, of changing the default, Oftentimes, governments did not feel very comfortable doing that because there's also a little bit of an ethical component to that, or at least it's perceived to be to 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 be maybe somewhat ethically questionable in certain situations because the question is, are you maybe taking advantage of some people who are not paying enough attention, who are not that literate, so they might not understand that they are now automatically um, enrolled in something, and they also might not understand how to get out of that, and they and that they can get out of that. So applying defaults, while it has been shown to really work beautifully in the lab, and definitely also in some situations in the field, it's not that straightforward of a of a solution, and it might not be the best solution for every practitioner in every situation. So in this case, it seems the default effect doesn't have the impact we expect. The results in the lab don't replicate in the wild. But this isn't just an issue with defaults, it's an issue across a whole host of different nudges. And one of the main issues fueling this problem is the publication bias. Here's Nina walking me through the publication bias. The way how it works for for scientists, our incentive is to publish work in journals that are considered to be really, really good, because this way our university and our peers recognize us as being the driving force maybe in 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 certain research areas and this is how you gain your reputation and and uh, for example if i try to to um increase text compliance and i have an idea of what type of interventions i want to use and i run a field experiment and 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 i test all these interventions and at the end of the experiment i get all the data i analyze it and i find none of my interventions worked now i have a problem because journals do not like to publish null effects so we would call this a null effect when there is no difference between those different interventions so Let's assume I tried a default. Let's assume I had a message with some social norms and all kinds of other things, and none of them had any effect. So as a consequence, if many papers with null effects have a hard time getting through the review process, many researchers may not even try to publish 
null effects. As a consequence, we end up with all these papers that always show an effect and oftentimes always show a positive effect. And so now you have your open, um, let's say you go on the internet, you Google what have been the papers that use the default and every single paper you find shows a positive effect. So what do you think? Yes, let's use default because it always works. You don't know about all the studies out there that did not work applying the, the default effect. The solution to the publication bias, according to Nina, is simple. Journals need to start publishing null effects. They need to share papers where implementations don't work. And if we were as a field open to publishing null effects like that, you would get a much more balanced view, first of all, about how often have things been tried and what percent of all these trials did this particular intervention work? And when it worked versus when it didn't work, what seemed to be some common themes? Are there some common themes that seem to suggest that this particular intervention is very sensitive to certain things, right? So that's that's in an ideal world what you would really like to learn. In 2018, Harvard Medical School professor Robert Yee published a paper in the British Medical Journal on the efficacy of parachutes for jumping from planes. Parachute used to prevent death and major trauma when jumping from an aircraft, randomised controlled trial, discovered something that most readers found incredible. It found that parachutes did not significantly reduce the risk of death or major injury for the 23 eligible participants. It's incredible, right? 12 jumped from a plane with a parachute, 13 jumped without a parachute. The paper found that neither group suffered any significant harm or injury. In fact, the outcomes were identical. It didn't matter whether they were wearing a parachute or not. Nobody got injured. That's pretty sensational, right? This is the sort of study you can imagine being shared thousands of times in news articles, blogs and books. But hidden in the middle of the paper was a sentence with a barely noticeable caveat. It read, The participants might have been at lower risk of death or major trauma because they jumped from a distance of half a metre and an aircraft moving at an average of zero kilometres an hour. In other words, the plane they jumped from was stationary and on the ground. The paper was a satire. It was all about the misuse of sensationalised findings and, and the importance of context in understanding data. It highlighted how all too many papers publish exaggerated, out-of-context results designed to capture attention. Dave Trott shared this paper in his book, Crossover Creativity, saying that we skim details in research papers and sensationalise the sexy parts. As readers, we fuel the publication bias. But... This is just the tip of the iceberg, because there's another significant problem that faces practitioners. It's called the voltage drop. The voltage drop is what happens when you take a small study that's worked in a lab and expect it to work across a whole population, across a much broader, bigger range of people. When you do this, you'll encounter problems. Instead of seeing the same impact scale, you'll see the impact drop off. That's the voltage drop. When you take insights from behavioral science, oftentimes from from smaller studies or studies ran on particular samples, and now you're trying to scale it to the entire population, you have suddenly much, you're introducing much more heterogeneity. And that most likely 
will lead to the initial effect that has been shown to decrease. And that is the voltage effect that, that most likely as you scale something up, because you're you will most likely experience more noise, you will have to expect that your effects will be much smaller than 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 what you may have read about. And there is actually this beautiful paper by Elizabeth Linos and Stefano Della Vigna that came out where they tried to quantify that that um, that difference. And I'm mentioning their work because Elizabeth actually has a chapter in her book where she summarizes those findings. And they would do a much better job than I will do, and I may make some mistakes. But 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 at the end of the day, what they have done is they got their hands on 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 field experiments that were done by I believe the behavioral insights team. And 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 the behavioral insights team, they publish all the work, no matter if it worked or it didn't work because they don't have these incentives to only publish in academic journals, right? They just put it out there. And so they took those studies and looked at, okay, well, what were the average effect sizes of those studies in the field? So how large were really the changes in in behavior, so to speak? And they compared it to those same interventions, but used in um, in in, in in scientific papers, so papers that were published in academic journals, but also in field experiments or in or in 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 in, in some lab experiments, and they found a huge difference in effect sizes. I looked into the book to find this paper for you. The study Nina mentioned looked at how effective the interventions by the American Behavioral Insights team were. Crucially, the Behavioural Insights team publish all their null effects, their null results, so there's no publication bias with their findings. A meta-analysis found that the nudges implemented by the Behavioural Insights team in America had a net positive impact of 8%. This includes all of the studies where the intervention worked and all of the studies where they didn't, the null effects too. So on average, nudges do work. If used correctly, they can change behaviour in a positive way for whatever you're trying to achieve by 8%. The researchers then compared the behavioural insights team's average impact with the average impact of all the other published studies in major scientific journals on those same nudges. They found the published studies were far more confident of the impact of these nudges, suggesting the nudges should boost behaviour by 33.5%. Although these studies are statistically significant and the papers are peer-reviewed, the impact somehow jumped from 8% to 33.5%. Clearly, the results outside the lab aren't as successful as we'd like to tell ourselves. This is the voltage drop. And now you may wonder, well, why is that the case? Well, oftentimes when we are, as scientists, write papers, we think of, well, who would be the ideal the ideal group on which we can test our intervention, right? So I, and, and, and then I will find out, okay, well, of that particular group that I'm now studying, what are the reasons why they are not behaving in the perfect way? And then I'm thinking, okay, well, what may be the best interventions for this particular group? But when I'm scaling it, now I have all these different groups, right? I mean, when I'm, I'm in the field of, of marketing and it's all about segmentation, right? We have these different group of people that each of these groups may have different motives for their behavior. So in an ideal world, you would maybe want to find out what is the perfect, I mean, there, there is no perfect, but what is one of the better interventions for each of these groups? And ideally, you would want to, for each of these groups, apply 
a different intervention. But what we usually do as practitioners, we just pick one intervention and we apply it to everybody. And 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 this is where we can most likely then expect a voltage drop. So so a drop in the effectiveness of the intervention. And um, let me maybe give you one another very concrete example. And this paper came out in Nature, and it was an intervention to increase the take up of the COVID vaccine in Poland. Very important paper, and it showed that. In a setting where people underestimate what doctors think about the COVID vaccination and how many of the doctors are actually willing to take the vaccine, if you if you expose individuals to that information, so for example, if if you knew that ninety percent of the doctors actually are going to take the, the the vaccine and think very highly of it, if you were to then share that information with with the citizens they will be much more likely then to also get the vaccine. In this particular setting, if you then reveal the true information, that can really make a difference. And it made a huge difference. And 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 and, and this was a paper that showed real behavioral uptake of the vaccine. So just a quick recap. A panel-based study found that telling Polish citizens that their doctor recommends getting the vaccine increased the likelihood that these citizens would get the vaccine. A Polish person who hears their doctor recommending the vaccine is more likely to go and get the vaccine themselves. That makes sense, right? We follow the actions of others, especially if those people have authority like a doctor does. There is a lot of evidence to back this up. So the Polish government might decide to create a campaign targeted at millions of people across Poland saying your doctor recommends the vaccine. And this should work, right? It's been proven in the lab. But there's a problem because the views of those people in that panel probably won't scale to the views of those who see a nationwide campaign. But this was done on a small panel. So a panel that was recruited for a medical study, so for a particular purpose. And this particular panel was exposed to that information. So, And since the panel was paid for participating in the study, they most likely also paid much more attention to this information. Now, if you want to scale this, right, you're just thinking, aha, the intervention is I have to just tell people what percent of the doctors in this country are following through with with the vaccine and what percent of doctors really think highly of that vaccine. And then I will have these effects where the the, um, vaccine take up will increase three times. But no, think about it. How would you scale the, I mean, just the attention that this panel gave to the information they were exposed to, how are you going to gain that same attention if you now were to scale this to the whole population of the country? It doesn't scale. Telling people that doctors recommend the vaccine has a very different effect in a small panel focus group compared to a large national campaign. So what's the solution? How do we beat the publication bias? How do we avoid the voltage effect? Well, Nina shares her solution after this quick break. As many of you know, I have just quit my job to go full-time on Nudge. But prior to that, I spent my career working in startups. And startups aren't easy. It's long hours, small teams, tiny budgets. It makes marketing hard work. But it doesn't have to be. 
HubSpot for startups can help grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing and support all together. So you can increase your leads, you can fast-track your deals, smooth out support and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. HubSpot also offer discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform and not the type of discounts that barely make a dent. So if you're ready to boost your marketing without breaking the bank, look no further than HubSpot for startups. To see how much you can save, visit hubspot.com startups. Okay, back to the show. Here's Nina sharing a solution to the voltage effect. The solution is to tailor your nudges. Don't expect one size to fit all. Expect to customize your intervention to get the best result that you want. Yeah, I would also like to talk a bit about how many practitioners expect that one size fits all. One intervention, it's the golden solution and and that's all. And 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 I and I think in part, this is our fault as scientists, because the, we have published a lot of papers where it is about, well, what is the best intervention on average? And let's just then use that and apply it to everybody. And and and, and we haven't paid that much attention to heterogeneity. And what I mean here, well, what type of intervention worked particularly well for what type of people or what groups of people? When I was at the World Bank, I had the privilege to work with a group of people on a tax experiment in the entire country of Poland. And we basically ran something like a mega study, so to say, because we had this huge population, the whole country, we could really think of a lot of different interventions. And 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 so we thought, okay, well, let's see what has worked in in. In other countries, especially we looked at studies done in collaboration with the Behavioral Insights team. And so our goal was to try and increase the number of people who pay their taxes. And and, and so we changed the letter that was going out to people when they were delinquent, paying their taxes. And, And we use, for example, social norms because that has been shown to work really well, right? So if you say something like, for example, 90% of people in your neighborhood have paid your taxes on time. You are among the small minority that has not done so, right? So that would be use of social norms and maybe a little bit of shaming. So this social norm nudge that Nina talks about, it really does work. The British Behavioural Insights team have used it to boost tax compliance in the UK. I've shared that a few times before. And it's been replicated elsewhere too. Like Nina mentioned in 2015, they tested it in Guatemala. In this study, the Guatemalan Tax Authority sent a number of different letters to citizens encouraging to pay their tax. One letter was just a simple reminder. It said, please declare your taxes now, the sort of standard letter you would get. Another used social norms. It said 64.5% of Guatemalans declare their income tax on time. And just like with the UK version, the social norm letter worked better. Saying most Guatemalans pay their tax on time increased the number of people who actually did fill in their taxes on time. Great, right? Social norms works. It wasn't a surprise for me to hear Nina testing this in her study. But she didn't just rely on social norms. She decided to test some other approaches too. Then we also used public good messages where you point out where your taxpayer money goes to, what is being financed with it. And, and, and we gave it a positive spin versus also a negative spin. So so gain versus a loss frame. 
So either saying, if you pay your taxes, we can finance schools, hospitals, blah, blah, blah. Or if you don't pay your taxes, we cannot finance these important things. I think this is great framing. Stating that your country will lose out if citizens don't pay tax on time should trigger loss aversion and should make people act. There's a great study in Nina's book that showcases this. It was conducted in a huge factory where thousands of staff spent their days manufacturing products. The researchers implemented two different incentive programs to see which was most effective for two groups of staff. One group received a £100 bonus if they got all their work done on time. Another group would get a £100 penalty if they didn't get their work done. What do you think happened? So one group gains, one group might lose out. Well, both incentives increased productivity compared to no incentives, but framing the incentive as a loss, saying you'd lose £100 if you didn't work hard enough, significantly increased productivity. Now, I actually think this is a shame. I wish this wasn't the case. I definitely wouldn't recommend implementing this. I don't think it's very ethical, but it shows that loss-framed messaging does work. And even though I wouldn't say you should use it in an incentive framework, I think using it in your messaging does make sense. So I was excited to hear that Nina was testing this out. But it wasn't the only one. Nina had one final nudge to try too. But then we also had messages that are more about deterrence. So emphasizing what are the true consequences if you continue to not pay. And some of them may actually be really stressful if this is pointed out to you, but it's it's the truth. So, you know, um, it starts by you having to fill out at some point all the income that you have and all and all the assets that you have, and then that can be seized theoretically, right? So this could be pointed out more. Nina and her team then tested these three approaches. They implemented all of them and then monitored the results to see which worked best. So we basically had soft tone, hard tone, and then we did whatever researcher not every researcher, but what we typically do, we looked at, okay, how did all these interventions do? And yes, we could show you that on average, the best performing was actually one of the deterrence messages, right? But again, this is on average. And then we looked at, well, actually turns out that the deterrence messages work particularly well for parents. Now you can think maybe why we, we didn't look into mechanism, but you know, as a parent myself, I have now some responsibility. I don't want to end up in jail. I don't want to lose my assets, right? So all these things that you may consider. And it didn't work so well on other groups of people. Or for example, the public goods messages that we used, they work particularly well in rural areas, but not so well in urban areas. So when you are able to look into these differences, then, then then, you can really tailor your messages to the right group. And in an ideal world, you also want to understand, well, why is something working for certain groups of people better than for others? Well, in the rural areas, really, people have more of a feeling of a community and they want to contribute. And there is maybe also more of a need for making sure that the schools are good and the hospitals are good because there aren't that many, right? So this is more at the forefront. So this will be more of a motivation for people to pay their taxes. And they may have not thought about it so much, how important their taxes really are for this, right? And 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 so if you understand why people are not behaving in a certain way or what are particular motivators, then you can take advantage of that and I mean advantage here in a positive way by thinking about what interventions would be most convincing for them. This is eye-opening, right? There is heaps of evidence that suggests everything Nina tried should work. 
social norm messages worked in Guatemala, loss aversion messaging worked in the manufacturing factory, but Nina found that most of these interventions did not work. They did not scale in the way she hoped. Take social norms. Saying most people pay their taxes on time, worked in the UK, worked in Guatemala, it should work in Poland, but did it? Just since I'm already talking about that study, just to give you another example of what did not work. So social norms usually works really well in 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 a tax context has been shown in the UK, it has been shown in Guatemala, it has been shown in other places. It didn't work so well in our context. Now, we don't know why. We have actually followed up now with some surveys to get a better sense. But you could, for example, think about, well, Poland is a former, well, it is an Eastern European country. It's a former country that went through socialism, communism. So maybe they are just tired of those type of of messages. Maybe there is some reactance to that, right? So, so I think oftentimes as researchers in the behavioral science, I mean, we when we run field experiments, and that in- includes me, we have spent more, I think, of our time on just focusing on effects and not so much on the mechanism. Sometimes nudges don't work. It pains me to say it, but it's true. Rather than blindly expecting nudges to work, we do need to test them to see if they are delivering the results we expect. I'll share one more example of this. It's a nudge-based intervention that I'm sure many of you have encountered yourself. Now, whenever you donate to a charity, you probably see a suggested amount, an amount that they suggest you should donate. For example, I've just loaded savethechildren.com right now. It's on my screen. And on the homepage on savethechildren.com, at least in the UK, I see three different suggested amounts that they suggest I donate. £25, £50 or £100 and then other amount if I wanted to. So why do they do this? Why do they have these suggested amounts? Well, it's because there is a lot of evidence that suggests this works. This is known as the anchoring bias. It shows that we are biased by those numbers and end up donating more when we see a high number like 100 because it builds the expectation that we should be donating a little bit higher than usual. This intervention has been proved in a number of different areas from courts of law to marketing websites. But there is some evidence that suggests this intervention might not actually increase the total amount of donations for charities. Save the Children might be making a huge mistake, according to this one study from the University of Chicago, which is again cited in Nina's book. The study found that setting a higher anchor, like Save the Children do, can result in larger donations, but also does discourage some people from donating at all. So save the children telling me to donate £100 might make someone donate a large amount, but it could encourage thousands of us to not donate. The study also found that the impact of these anchors vary depending on the type of donor. For example, a low anchor works best on infrequent donors, but won't work best for frequent donors. So if Save the Children are emailing someone who hasn't donated in the past year, using this anchor, this high anchor of £100, actually will backfire. It'll actually make them less likely to donate. I often say on this podcast that applying these nudges is simple, and I think I've lied. It's not always as simple as I say. Clearly, with this example from Save the Children, there's multiple different things they need to test to make sure it's right. You might expect a nudge like anchoring to work every single time, but it doesn't. The publication bias and voltage effects means we can't rely on nudges to work every time. Save the Children shouldn't blindly use anchors. They need to test it out, just like the rest of us, because nudges affect different people in different ways. And the best way to get around this is to follow Nina's advice and test your interventions before blindly making changes. 
Okay, that is all for today, folks. I know this episode was very, very behavioural science focused. Um, Sorry if for some of the listeners who maybe aren't too keen on getting really into the weeds about this stuff. It is pretty detailed. So I do say thank you for all of those who have stuck through to the end. I often try to make my episode a little bit more accessible than this around a subject or a topic, which is a little easier to get your head around. Um, But this one was was quite direct. It was fully about behavioural science. So I'm grateful for all of those who have listened. I'm also grateful for Nina for coming on. If you are a regular reader of behavioural science books like me, you will see Nina's name pop up everywhere. She has published heaps of studies on the topic and it was a real pleasure to interview her. I think most of you listening will love her book, Behavioural Science in the Wild. It gives some brilliant information on how to apply nudges in the real world. If you want to pick up a copy, I've dropped a link to it in the show notes. Now, unfortunately, I had to cut a lot of the conversation that I actually had with Nina. As you know, I tried to keep these episodes to around 30 minutes in length, which means we skipped over a lot of things. In fact, there was a lot in my recording with her that I wasn't able to include. However, I have made the full interview with Nina available as a bonus episode. So you can listen to the full interview if you want to get really into the weeds of how to apply behavioral science. It's a really good chat. We go into much more detail about ways to apply, much more detail about nudges that don't work, more detail about Nina's work. So if you want to get access, all you have to do is sign up for my newsletter using the link in the show notes. Those who are already signed up will have a link to the bonus episode in the email that they got announcing this very podcast going live. So just go check that. And everybody else can sign up and get access simply by clicking the link in the show notes and signing up via that link. If you sign up via the link in the show notes, you will be able to get instant access to the bonus episode. That will sign you up to my newsletter. And if you want to unsubscribe, you can do so immediately. You still get access to the bonus episode. And if you're an existing subscriber and you can't see that email from me, don't worry, just follow the same link in the show notes, sign up, drop your email address in there. You won't get subscribed twice. It just checks you're already subscribed. So go and give that bonus episode a listen. If you want, the full interview with Nina is is a really cracking chat, so I think you'll enjoy it. Okay, that's all from me today. As always, I'm your host, Phil Agnew. You can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of Nudge.